Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast. This is episode number 45 and today we're talking about 0.89. As usual, I have Phil joining me today. Hey, Phil. Hey, how's it going? Good. And we've also got Courtney joining us today. Hey, Courtney. Hi there. All the way from Canada as well, Courtney, so welcome. That's right. A fellow Canadian. I think this is one of the only times we've had a Canadian on. I was going to say we've outnumbered the uh, other countries tonight. I know, I know. This this never happens. I, I'm usually the only one. And... <laughs> Me too. So, yeah, it's, it was perfect. So th- thanks for joining us. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited. This episode is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Nabucasa. Easily connect to Google and Amazon Voice Assistants for a small monthly fee that also supports the Home Assistant project. Configurations via the user interface so there's no fiddling with router settings, dynamic DNS, or any YAML. Rohan, one thing we've both said we really enjoy about the Home Assistant community is that it's collaborative and welcoming to everyone. And tomorrow is actually International Women's Day, so and the theme of which is Balance for Better. And this campaign calls out for all of us to challenge gender stereotypes and bias, to forge positive visibility for women, and to celebrate women's achievements. So today it's important to recognize that we don't often have women on our podcast, so we are especially pleased to be joined today by Courtney, so thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. And I hope that there are other women who will reach out and uh, participate as well. Absolutely. Yeah, please, we highly encourage that. So 0.89. That's uh, right. New features. The Nissan Leaf car has a whole new uh, Nissan, Nissan Leaf platform, which is added to Home Assistant. And it now allows you to do some pretty cool stuff. So you can see the battery status of your car. You can turn on and off the climate control. And you can also start the car charging from within Home Assistant. You can't stop the car from charging. There's an API limitation for that. But yeah, if you have uh, a newer version of the Nissan Leaf as well, there'll also be a device tracker added to Home Assistant. So all those greenies with a Nissan Leaf, uh, welcome. And you've got some cool features there. Yeah, all all of this just reminds me that I need to buy a new car because <laughs> of all the stuff we're doing and everything like that, my car is still, you know, disconnected. It's probably for the best, but it's disconnected. <laughs> well, on an unrelated note, I saw today that uh, in Australia, at least, the one of the uh, Tesla, uh, the really premium model uh, insane mode Teslas have had a 33% discount. They're now, instead of 250000 Australian dollars, I think they're only 186 thousand oh, australian wow. dollars to buy one so, so you'll so be picking affordable. one up tomorrow then i right? ordered two as soon as i yeah, saw yeah. that i ordered two <laughs> right? one in each color that's that's right that's right but but i did hear on a more reasonable note i did hear the model three uh they finally released the thirty five thousand dollar version which is kind of what they were touting the entire time right so yeah so that is uh very cool so congrats to tesla for that so next feature uh, from a release perspective, uh, going, going back to what we we're actually talking about, uh, <laughs> the Minute Point Hub. So that's a, it's a uh, hub by the company Minute or Minui or M-I-N-U-T. So you'll be able to add, you'll be able to see control panels, binary sensors and sensors connected to the Point Hub. That's cool. I think they're a European based company. So yeah, if you're in Europe, you'll be interested in that. Mm hmm. Uh, There's also a new binary sensor added to Home Assistant. This one is the time of the day binary sensor. So it allows you to specify a time of the day and you can use either time or sun conditions uh, to use it. So an example I've sort of come up with loosely is that if you have like evening, you might define it, you know, 10 minutes before sunset and, you know, up to midnight or until sunrise. But because the sunset and sunrise always change throughout the year, this allows you to have you know, to be able to tell Home Assistant when evening is in your home, and then that will slowly adjust depending out throughout the year, whatever the sun position is and, and all your other criteria as well. So I guess if you're using templates to do sort of magic and sunset offset positions in all your automations, now you can define that in one central place in that binary sensor. Very cool. Owlet baby monitor. So if you have a connected baby monitor uh, by Owlet, so you can, uh, it helps you check your baby's oxygen level, heart rate while they're sleeping. So that's kind of cool. You can also, uh, when you connect it to Home Assistant, it sounds like you can also see motion and base station connection status as well on top of the heart rate and oxygen level. So that's kind of neat. I think I think this is one of the first baby ones we've talked about. Yeah, and SmartThings is also the the new SmartThings integration has got a lot of updates in this release, and some of those is the ability of covers and scenes. So if you have those defined in SmartThings, they'll now be available in Home Assistant as well. 
Mm-hmm. Also, a Reddit sensor, which basically displays your top topic from a subreddit. So you could use it to say, let's say, for example, Home Assistant. So what is the latest top post of Home Assistant uh, from Home Assistant subreddit, as an example? Um, it can be any other subreddit, too. It's kind of cool. Actually, on, yeah. a, um, on a sort of a tangent to that, I, I was actually really excited when I saw this Reddit sensor. It reminded me I have um, an, an IFT recipe on my my ift account it links up reddit and my spotify and i have uh, a few recipes run so that when there's a the latest or a new top track trending in for example the chill out subreddit it will add it to a spotify playlist so that way you know if i have i can have different genres of music in my playlists and you know as people are adding you know that sort of genre music to reddit it will automatically update my Spotify playlist with fresh music. Oh wow, that's kind of cool. So, so I, I guess this chill out subreddit is related to music and so on. Yes, and so yes. Forth. So you, yeah, and then they, you know, you can obviously go onto your tangent. You can go rock and roll, and you know, there's because there's obviously a subreddit for everything. Yeah, um, yeah. And of course, you know, Reddit comes with trolls, and you know, just maybe once a month, I'll just have to go through and remove all the screaming <laughs> rock and roll music from my chill out playlist. But that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's de- death yeah, metal yeah. as you're trying as, to relax. Exactly. As long as there's more good than bad, right? E- exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. that's my philosophy. It, it's worked. <laughs> it works more times than I have to worry about it. So, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, that's one of my favorite. That's my really like only use case for Ift at the moment. It's that and getting timers to make and the Amazon Echo timers to flash the lights in Home Assistant. But that's only because the Amazon Echo only allows Ift integration for that. But yeah, other than that, yeah. If it really doesn't play too much of a home automation role for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, also, Meteo France is now available as a weather component. So if you want to use a French uh, meteorological survey as, as a sensor in here, you now can do that, especially in Lovelace. So that'd be kind of cool. For all those cool weather cards. Okay. So another component that's just been added uh, very last minute to the beta release, uh, it's a new mobile app component. Now, this isn't a feature that will be used by anyone except for mobile app developers. So starting from 0.89, if you have the new default configuration component enabled, which we talked about in the last episode, Mm -hmm. Home Assistant will ship with the mobile app component loaded in your Home Assistant instance. So by itself, this component won't do anything. It's just going to be running in the background. However, this new component will be used by developers for mobile applications such as Android and iOS which will allow easier and deep integration between Home Assistant and the mobile apps. So, for example, a developer who is making a Home Assistant Android application will be able to have their mobile app talk with Home Assistant via encryption and webhooks without the user needing to set anything up. And there's also tools available for the mobile app to set things up, such as device trackers for the new person component and, of course, using the new authentication system for Home Assistant. So, yeah, now what we need is... uh, a few whizzes with Android to create us a nice native Android app for Home Assistant. That's right. That doesn't drain your battery. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what are you guys using on your Android phones for apps now? Uh, I'm Honestly, I just have uh, the front end added as a shortcut to my home screen. Yeah, and, I, and I'm a U- iOS user, so I, I, <laughs> so I actually use count. the official one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm on, I use the test pilot one... Uh, that the that that home assistant puts out i've been using um i don't know if it's ariella or ariella yeah on android i saw that one it was only recently came out or it's only recently being discovered i hadn't heard of it until a couple of weeks ago as well it's fairly new it's certainly under very fast development and it doesn't support uh like the picture entity card in lovelace for example Mm -hmm. so there's still some limitations there Um, but there's a toggle in the app that lets you just use the web like display the web UI rather than the app UI. So I've got that toggled on. So it's much like having just that home screen shortcut um, from that perspective, but it does have additional features in that it sends the MQTT triggers back to Home Assistant and and that kind of thing. So I've played with a few of them. Um, That's the one I'm working with right now just because I haven't uh, dug into any others, but having a mobile app component within Home Assistant, I think, will make a big difference for the developers to be able well, to. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. And it, because it's so agnostic as well, it doesn't necessarily have to be for Android. I'm, I'm guessing eventually the iOS developers will start using this integration as well for their 
apps moving forward and you know if there's you know in 10 years time if there's another platform that's completely taken over android and ios completely then this you know agnostic uh, kit will be available for that as well yeah it'd be kind of interesting so so does this app do location and all that stuff as well uh yeah so um it has a selection of sort of what you can send back to home assistant and uh, i can pull up the menu if i can ever remember how to find it Uh, (laughs) there's because i'm on the web ui when i hit the thing that i think is settings it pulls out the like web ui settings and then i have to remember the right right right, spot to do that but yeah so on the mqtt you have a bunch of sensors that you can choose from battery wi-fi temperature, light level, Bluetooth, humidity, pressure, like pretty much everything that your phone knows uh, is happening. And then as well as, uh, you know, the geolocation. Wow. There's a device tracker sort of specifically with update period and um, position. So how far, you know, how many meters from your position you have to move before it sends an update, whether it uses GPS or Wi-Fi for tracking. Um, So there's quite uh, refined settings in that you can you know, really get only as much information as you want, but also as pretty much all the information from your phone is available to you. That's, That's very really cool. neat. I might have to check that out, actually. All right, some breaking changes uh, in this yes. release. And as we mentioned before, SmartThings has had a, a few changes going on in this release. And if you are using the new SmartThings integration, you will need to do some reconfiguration as you restart Home Assistant. So uh, once you've upgraded and you restart Home Assistant, just have your phone uh, nearby and with the SmartThings Classic app, uh, you'll need to get some new access tokens and all that as well. But mm-hmm. it won't affect the naming of devices or entities. It's just a one-time inconvenience. Yeah. Also, uh, any custom platforms that uh, that basically have a built-in platform as a component uh, now need to be in the custom components slash whatever folder. So basically, if you want to override, let's say, Hue and light.py uh with a custom version then you need to actually put it in there and you need to provide a copy over the hue and then init.py and so on and so forth the documentation will be that one is a little more complicated but the documentation will be on the uh on the home assistant site so make sure you follow that yeah so basically if you are doing any work with custom components just whatever home assistant has as a, a python file in there components directory just make sure you copy that into your custom components directory yeah yeah uh there is now the automatic discovery of tp-link light bulbs switches and dimmers so they will now be auto discovered on your network however you may need to update your configuration slightly if you've uh, been previously using those so if you're a tp-link user just watch out on this upgrade mm-hmm also, uh, we actually have a removal. Uh, so the Google Travel Time Update service has actually been removed. So if you use that in the past, um, you may want to... Essentially, basically what happens is they're standardizing the components and you can you can do it. You can, I believe you can still use it. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Phil. You can still use it, but then you need to actually update the entity ID of the sensor and then... Yeah, so remember... Uh, uh maybe six six months ago, a year ago, Google sort of closed off their Maps API requiring you to, you had a free tier, and then I think they've now if you go beyond that free tier, you have to pay to use their mm-hmm. Google Maps API. And so rather than, you know, if you go above that free tier, you know, Home Assistant by default will go above that free tier. So now there is the ability for users to have their own basically through an automation they can specify when they want the travel time sensor to be updated so if you're only going to use the travel time sensor for work you may necessarily want you know home assistant making api calls on a weekend so now there was the google travel time update service it's now been uh, everything that has an update entity which i think also came in with uh, when they did the changes to template sensors where you had to specify an entity id or you could manually force an update of an entity there is a a home assistant service it's called home assistant dot update yeah and when you provide the entity id of that sensor that you want to be updated it will go ahead and force an update of that sensor so in this case you would call home assistant dot update and then you would pass in the entity id of sensor dot work travel time and it will know to go out to google uh, fetch the latest travel time and and suck that down Mm mm-hmm 
Um, all right, so Fire TV users should now use the Android debug bridge. So in the last episode, we mentioned that there was the ability now for Fire TV users to see what app is currently running. Uh, there's a new Hasoyo add-on, and there's also a Python library available that uses the Android debug bridge, uh, which will allow you to take basically take control of any Android TV device, and this includes the Fire TV so uh, instead of so you should now so from 0.89 you should now use uh, the android debug bridge uh, to control what apps are running on the fire tv very cool so hopefully that makes it a little more efficient too mm. the tune component has been uh, rewritten so essentially what that means is if you're using this uh, component you're going to need a tune api developer account uh, and then from that perspective, uh, you now use that for your integrations and also support for switches and smoke detectors have been removed. So uh, also shout out to Frank, who's uh, who's super famous for all of his HasIO add-ons. Uh, this is uh, actually one of his uh, first major comp- uh, contributions to the Home Assistant core code base. So there you go. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Yeah, well done. Uh, some other noteworthy updates for this release. Uh, once again, SmartThings joins us. Its power and energy attributes have been added to all SmartThings switches. So now you can do some cool things knowing how much energy is being drawn from those switches. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, Home Assistant will actually tell you if there's a... Uh, it'll, it'll spew out a warning message if your Philips Hue bridge uh, requires a firmware update or, or if there's one available. Uh, to make sure you update that, which uh, I, I think is great, from especially from a security perspective. If there's any vulnerabilities, anything like that, even if you look at Home Assistant, it's like, hey, go update this. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of cool. And if you're using a Google Home device, uh, there was they recently added a feature that would allow Google Home devices to be used as device trackers via Bluetooth scanning. Uh, this can Now, if you didn't want to use this, you were sort of forced to have it but now there is the ability for you to disable device tracking from individual Google Home devices via the configuration. So, for example, if you've got a Google Home upstairs and you don't want it to do any presence detection via Bluetooth scanning, you can now just either turn that one off or you can go ahead and, against all your Google Home devices, just say device tracking false and that'll be disabled for you. Very cool. Yeah, I think that one's really important. Um, yeah. I was experimenting with that and found that it did not operate in a way that was useful for me at all. So uh, I'm glad that that's split out now. Yeah, yeah, particularly if you know someone comes over to your house and they might have Bluetooth on for that split second or whatever, and then you've got a new device tracker that's been added and you don't know where it's come from. Yeah, I was getting like hundreds of them a day. I, I'm pretty oh, sure wow. that like maybe I just live too close to the road and everyone's truck now has Bluetooth. Like <laughs> it, it really seemed like every yeah. vehicle that went by was getting picked up. So. Oh, no. Yeah, especially if you keep one by the window or something like that, then it's... Yeah. Uh, then it's especially we're, gonna... we're all so glad that Bluetooth is so much more powerful than it used to be until we got until it. this, yeah. Well, exactly right. Or, or even if you live in a in like a uh, condo building or something, or like an mm. apartment where, you know, especially if it's if it's a large one where you got like thirty floors, forty floors. Delivery 50 floors. driver comes through with his little scanner to scan your thing. There you go. There's a new device tracker yeah. added to your home assistant. Well, yeah. exactly. All of your neighbors, all of their friends, all of their family. Yeah. Right, so that's uh, that's not always a bad thing to have that customization. That's right. Uh, and another noteworthy feature that I'm actually uh, really pleased to see, uh, Anders has done uh, a great job to overhaul the Sonos snapshot and restore methods uh, to make them more reliable. So this should allow you to more reliably take a snapshot of the Sonos state, for example, uh, what's playing, what uh, speakers are grouped together, you can then go ahead and play your announcements either through text-to-speech or an MP3 file. And then when you restore things, they should actually come back to the way they were. So previously, this was pretty unreliable. I'm actually running a HTTP Node.js uh, Sonos API for my announcements just because of how unreliable the snapshot and restore state was. So I'm really pleased to see that that's been reworked. So thank you, Anders. That's very cool. So Courtney, this is this is kind of where we get to talk about you and and some of the cool stuff you're doing. All right, let's uh, see what you've got to ask. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean. Well, let's start with 
you know, tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself and, and your your uh, your home assistant uh, journey. Let's call it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I got started with sort of the home automation idea. I mean, I listened to a couple of other podcasts, not this one, uh, about uh, home automation and was aware of, I listened to a lot of podcasts that center around people who are into the Apple ecosystem and uh, HomeKit was something that came up quite a bit. So Mm -hmm. I was sort of aware of what was out there, um, but hadn't really explored anything and then um, got a couple of outlets, um, just the, you know, single plug into the wall and you plug something else into them and they, you know, turn on and off with an app. Um, That was sort of the first foray into it. And I got a couple of those. They were on sale on some cheap site somewhere and uh, just got them to experiment with. Uh, Once I got those, then I got interested in the idea of being able to track the amount of electricity that some of my appliances were pulling. Um, And specifically, I have, uh, you know, a freezer, we had a plasma TV at the time. And I just wanted to get a feel of what was drawing electricity in the house Mm. and found a couple of more of those outlets that were almost exactly the same, except they have this ability to track the the power consumption over time. Um, And that's where I then started getting interested in something other than just, you know, this app on my phone, uh, because the app (laughs) wasn't set up very well for being able to actually analyze any of this data. So, I mean, I could sort of see, you know, what's happening right now or like what has happened over the past week on average, but uh, nothing to really give me the information that I was seeking. So I started looking around to see what options there were for, you know, something that would take the data. I, I, I knew enough to know that my phone was getting the data that I wanted, but it just wouldn't let me see it in the app. So I figured someone out there had probably come up with some kind of solution. And uh, I was a little bit aware that there were, you know, Home Assistant and I think Open Hub is the other one uh, mm-hmm. that I've heard of from these podcasts. So when I came across Home Assistant and started looking into it and then realized what a community it has behind it and how quickly it's being updated and all of that, um, I sort of, you know, decided it was something to try and started using it just for that power logging feature, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I then I added a bunch more components really quickly um, and tried to authorize a bunch of things that I didn't know what I was doing and ended up kind of just crashing that whole instance. Uh, and so <laughs> I, uh, I just laid that one to rest and started over um, right. <laughs> and have been a little bit uh, more slow in adding things to this one so that I can keep a bit of a better handle on uh, what's running and and where problems might be Um, but the uh, when I got involved in the the home assistant thing one of the things that I'd put on my previous iteration before it totally crashed and burned um, was the original PlayStation component because we do have a couple of Google Home minis and the Google Home app has gotten a lot better over the last six months than it used to be Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it does do a lot of what home assistant offers um, in terms of being able to, you know, control all the devices in one app. The issue is that PlayStation is way behind the times. Uh, And so there's just no, there's just no way really to interact with the PlayStation in any kind of automatic way without something additional. So uh, there was sort of this weird Docker container that you had to install for like PS4 Waker that I think ran on JavaScript. Like it was quite a process. Um, I did manage to get it up and running. And then, like I say, that was the instance that kind of went away. So when I started over, I went and, and looked into that again and noticed that it was in development to be part of like to be a main component in home assistant and decided at that point that I wasn't going to go through all of that uh, rigmarole to get it going in its current state again and just wait for it to become part of the main release which has happened uh, in this latest beta so that's sort of what got me in and then what got me to stay hey everyone I just wanted to take a minute to talk about the Eufy video lock it's a smart lock that's really easy to set up with just a Phillips screwdriver and no extra drilling It's got a keyless entry, so you don't need to worry about fumbling with the keys when your hands are full. Also, you don't need to worry about handing out extra keys when you're in a pinch, your kids losing them, or people copying the key and passing it around to each other. Something else I like about the Eufy Video Lock is that it has a camera built in and it works as a doorbell as well. Personally, I think the Eufy Video Lock is great for apartments or cottages where you can't necessarily add extra holes for a video doorbell. 
My favorite part about it though, is that there isn't a monthly fee and your recordings are locally stored. So you don't have to worry about someone else owning your doorbell data. You can find it on Amazon, or if you want to know more, search Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. So now you're using Home Assistant to like remotely turn on the PlayStation? So yeah, I mean, I've only had it for a couple of days. Uh, the beta came out, I think, Thursday morning, and I spent a bit of time during my work day uh, <laughs> fiddling around with it on Thursday, um, and then a bit more time today. But definitely, uh, it'll turn the PlayStation on and off. That's that's pretty easy and straightforward. And then uh, it's a little bit interesting. PlayStation is a very frustrating uh, system to use in a bunch of ways. So. One of the main activities that we do at the PlayStation is watch video on either Netflix or Amazon Prime, uh, YouTube, that sort of thing. Right. And we can control a lot of the PlayStation with just our regular TV remote through the CEC HDMI protocol, which mm -hmm. is bizarre, but works. And then there's an app for the PlayStation that you can have on your phone that lets you have, again, some control, but neither system has all the control. So it's it's a very interesting combination. But with Home Assistant, um, I found like getting it on and off was easy. And then I set up some automation so that, you know, if we turn the PlayStation off, the TV turns off as well, um, that sort of thing. But then I uh, figured out that I can still use the actual media player commands as well as the specific PlayStation ones. So I can change the source. Uh, so one of our huge frustrations, again, if we have just the remote and the phone, like if we have the PlayStation controller, you know, plugged in across the room, we can't switch from Netflix to Amazon. Like when we sit down to eat dinner, once we pick one, we're in, we can't get back out. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're committed at this point. So, yeah. so the cool thing that, that Home Assistant will allow us to do, um, and like I've, I've played with it, I haven't automated it yet, but I have played with it and it works, is change the source. So I can tell the PlayStation to go from you know, Amazon to Netflix, vice versa, um, or, you know, when it first starts up, have, you know, we're sitting down to watch TV. Um, it, it'll be really nice to be able to say the magic words to the Google Home and uh, something like, you know, um, turn the PlayStation on to Netflix and, and have it sort of go through the four or five entry screens to get in there um, and just be sitting at Netflix ready for us to watch rather than, you know, powering on the PlayStation and it takes five to 10 seconds to spin up and then you have to push yeah. the PlayStation button and then you have to push OK to log into the user and then three more clicks to get Netflix to start loading. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, it's I mean, it's a small thing, but when you're doing it a couple of times a day, that 15 seconds of of having that done sort of ahead of you is really nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. That, that's that's one thing I've actually always hated about the PlayStation is, is exactly that. Right. The Oh, you need to go. You have you have to press the PlayStation button, and you have to do like even the, even the first the automation remote. I wrote once I had the beta up was an automation that when the PlayStation turns on, press the PlayStation button. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. It's a tiny thing that makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. That to me, that's table stick. That should be that should be default. <laughs> well, yeah. and that's really cool because even if I don't trigger turning the PlayStation on from Home Assistant. Every time we turn the PlayStation on, regardless of how it gets turned on, that gets pressed. So that's really yes. nice. That's very cool. It's funny because I think even the, the big players, I, I think this has been an issue for Logitech Harmony users as well. Like for whatever reason, PlayStation will just not play ball. Yeah. And I think even if you had a Logitech Harmony, there were still these, these quirks that you've experienced. But now Home Assistant has found a way around that. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I'm really hopeful. Um, I mean, I, I haven't looked into it in depth, but I was looking around yesterday on some of the discussions around WebOS, which is what our TV is. And so I suspect that with a bit of improvement to WebOS and some improvements that I'm sure will come to the PlayStation component now that it's out, um, that like because what we can do between Home Assistant, the app on my phone, and the remote for the TV, <laughs> I can do everything I need to do in the PlayStation now. And so if we get to the point where what I can do with the remote for my TV is accessible in Home Assistant, um, then I think I think we'll get to the point where I can actually make the PlayStation bend to my will without uh, having to touch <laughs> any other devices. So 
we'll see if we get there. Yeah, good, good, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So when you're actually changing apps, does it go and print, like, is it actually pressing the buttons for you so you can see it flicking out from, you know, like Netflix and then going back into, you know, searching for the YouTube app or going over here and that to go into YouTube or? I'm not sure what it's doing under the hood. Um, I had initially tried to get it to switch apps by sending. So as part of the component, you can send commands and those commands mm-hmm. are things like, you know, X or triangle and um, up, down, back, PlayStation button, etc. And so I had tried using that to kind of, you know, I want to go down, over, down, whatever. Um, and once you're in an app you're locked in and and your PlayStation, like those controls are no longer effective. And so that's where I kind of hit a wall and, and wasn't, I was like, Oh great. Like now I've, I've waited so long for this thing and now I'm going to have to wait longer (laughs) for it to do what I actually need it to do, which really is just to switch from Amazon prime to Netflix. Um, But, (laughs) but then I was just sort of, you know, looking, looking in the um, services dev tool and just, kind of what what can I do and found that I do have the um, you know the media player uh, select source option and I thought well you know what's the worst that happens if I try it it's just going to give me an error message so I just mm-hmm. typed in my Netflix in there and called the service and it worked nice. I don't know what it's it does it does flash the screen kind of like it doesn't you don't see it go over and down but it does yep. go back to the PlayStation screen before it goes into the next app and it also doesn't close the app which I don't know enough about how the PlayStation works again I'm <laughs> I'm coming at this just from the watching yeah. TV side my boyfriend's the one who knows about the PlayStation itself but he says that it like it leaves the app running so uh, after I was playing with it on Thursday he went to shut it down and there was like three or four different apps on the PlayStation that were apparently not closed out. I don't know if that affects RAM or, or usage or anything on the PlayStation level, but I know it annoys my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so speaking of your boyfriend, how many people are in your smart home? So, he and I are upstairs. We have a couple of roommates downstairs, um, mm-hmm. and they've added sort of a, a slight extra layer of complexity. So we've got a bunch of lights that are all automated now and making sure that the lights that they need to use are accessible uh, so that they know how to turn them on and off. Yeah, sure. Uh, when, you know, when we just had a light, you know, in our bedroom or, or whatever, it was kind of a non-issue. But as we brought lights, we got a bunch for Christmas as, as a gift. And uh, so as we brought them to the rest of the house, we needed to help them understand how to use the system. Um, mm-hmm. And they are both iOS users. And so they have the Home Assistant iOS app. Brian, the the guy is pretty tech savvy. And so he was able to set up both their phones with it, just with the, I, I haven't made them users or anything, just with the standard login. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they really appreciate that because trying to add them as family in Google Home was just a little bit complex for, mm. <laughs> for what I needed. Uh, yeah. And then we also have a tablet. Um, through work, I ended up with a couple of extra iPads. So I've got just an iPad Air 2. Um, and I've got a couple of pictures on my uh, GitHub of how I've got it fancily attached to my wall. But my uh, iPad has a, the Home Assistant floor plan on it that lets you sort of control the lights and stuff. And then they do use the Google Home Mini as well. I sometimes hear them come in with their, you know, hey, dingus, turn on the light. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really excited about the idea of using some device tracker stuff um, because especially like for them, like they tend to come home or leave and sort of the lights that are in their space, it would be really nice to turn those on and off. But I've bumped into a couple of issues with that one. So, And then my boyfriend is just mostly annoyed um, with the home automation stuff. He really likes that we can, uh, you know, go to bed and, and be lying in bed and turn off lights that we've forgotten to turn off or chosen not to turn off. Um, but especially anytime there's a delay between whether it's, you know, tapping something on the iPad screen or asking Google to do it or using his phone. Anytime there's any delay between the request and the actual action taking place, he gets quite frustrated by that. So, Yeah, it, it's all about the user experience. Even if, you know, for my Amazon Echo, if the timer alarm is going off and you're yelling at her to turn it off and she doesn't turn it off in a timely manner, that can, yeah, that can cause some dramas as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's, uh, that's a common occurrence in my house too. Is, uh, 
Well, and remembering the right syntax, like with the alarm, um, I, I don't know that that Google will ever get there, but it would be really nice to be able to just say stop, mm-hmm. but you have to preface it with the you know hey dingus stop and when when the alarm is going off and you're in the middle of trying to you know get the thing out of the oven that is what the alarm was for thinking through oh right i have to say these extra words is often not the thing you're wanting to do right then i think once you once you do it enough times then it starts becoming kind of second nature Mm -hmm. right and we have conversation mode on ours as well so um like if i ask for you know a light to be turned on or off, I can then follow that up with, you know, and also something else, um, right. which is really nice to not have to keep sort of just repeating that phrase over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I need that on my Echo because that's usually what I, what I end up doing. Hey, do this. Okay, hey, do that. <laughs> do you have your Rohan, yours enabled for follow-up mode on the Echo? No, um, I haven't looked again, but when I last looked, it wasn't actually released for me. Um, but I need oh, to double check course. if it is, but I, I, I kind of forgot about it and I just got so used to giving 10 different commands. Yeah. 10 different yeah, times, I, but I found like, cause I'm you're still using like, so the echo is out here in Australia now, but I'm still using the U S version because obviously, you know, they've got all the features that, and then they just cherry pick the features for everywhere else. But I remember like, I've noticed that sometimes, you know, once she's finished a command, she'll then, you know, wait and, and see if I want to ask something else. And if I ask her something, you know, maybe you know, half of the time she just will ignore my second request. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's not perfect yet. But yeah. We'll get there, yeah. I'm sure. We don't have any of the echoes, but do they have a like an indicator light or something that lets you know they're listening? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a, a ring that you know it it lights up on the top, especially the the Echo Dots do, and they also the the ring will actually uh, face which direction it thinks the sound is coming from. Uh, so you know it, that way you can if you've got the Echo against a a wall or something, and you as you're talking to the Echo, if the ring is facing the wall, you're probably getting a lot of um, Ac- uh, reflection, yeah, reflections off the wall. Yeah, which might reduce the accuracy a bit. So it sort of tries to help you, you know, position the echo in a a nice place as well. Yeah, I my my main one in my uh, living room is actually um, really poorly placed behind my TV, which is where the speakers are too. So if we're watching TV, yeah. then it's basically like you, you you basically have to mute or pause or whatever and and say mm-hmm. whatever you have to say because otherwise uh, the echo just does not pick it up. Um, so we, we've, I've, I've yep. found that's an issue as well. And, you know, or, or I just have to entirely move it from around my TV as a whole. Just to give a plug for Google for just a second, um, now that they don't have their own <laughs> issues, but, um, one of the really cool things about the Google home is that it uses, because we have Android phones, it uses the microphones mm-hmm. on our phones as well. So the Google Home will always sort of own yeah. the conversation. But for example, I mean, our speaker is, you know, right next to our TV. We had to move some things around when we got the kitten. And so now there's like speakers between us and yeah. it all the time. Um, but if our, like we have our phones, you know, near us or with us when we're sitting on the couch. And so it, like the speaker still responds and, and takes the action, but it'll use the microphone in the phone to pick that speech up, which uh, makes it that's, yeah, really that's nice for cool. when you're listening yeah. to TV. But you have to sort of be okay with Google always listening. Yeah, I mean... My my biggest complaint about the Google is that phrase that you have to say. You have to say Google every time, and it's such a mouthful, like it's just unnatural. I don't think I could... Maybe if they ever bring out custom commands, that would be cool, but... Does Alexa let you customize what your... Um... They've got some predefined options. So you can choose her name, obviously. You can choose Echo. You can say Amazon. And you can also say computer, um, which is sort of like a... a yes, yeah, Star, Star Trek. Trek and, and also yeah. we just triggered literally everybody's, everybody's Echo devices. <laughs> exactly. If anyone had thought they were smart by listening to this podcast and changing their wake word, we just got you good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you can customize them, but I think with the Google Home, there is you can choose either um, "Hey" or "OK" to start off that sentence. Yeah. Oh, really? So it's oh, right. So you don't get a, a you can't disable one or the other. So you couldn't say you know for the 
um, Google Home devices, you can say "Hey," and then I thought I thought one triggers just the phone and one triggers both. I could be wrong, but I might. Mm. I thought that was the case, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amazon also has done a pretty decent job with that too. Just even when I listen to TV, I'll, I'll hear the ring or I'll see the ring, you know, light up, and then it'll be like, "Oh wait, that wasn't for me," and then just kind of quietly go away, kind of thing, right? So. I think they've both kind of yeah. gotten that down pat. I noticed that none of us are talking about Siri. It's you, you know what you know what I, I got the new I got the new iPhone XS or whatever, and uh, I, I will say so. Before that, I had an iPhone six for the longest time, and and Siri was just absolute garbage, and uh, it it has gotten a lot better with in terms of it picking up what I say and. So on and so forth, and you know when I use the wake words, it'll 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 pick it up and whatever. But yeah, I I don't know that I trust it enough to do my voice uh, to do my home automation accurately, so I don't use it. Yeah, I have uh, Apple devices for work, so an iPhone, yeah. a handful of iPads, a couple of Macs. Um, I have a Touch Bar Mac where I'm often accidentally hitting the little Siri button on the touch yeah. bar. I'm sure there's a way to disable that. I haven't. There, there is. I, that's the first thing I did. You can actually remove it. <laughs> <laughs> that that, that yeah. should have been the first thing I did, especially because it's so close to the fingerprint sensor. And when you're on a, a web call, it mutes your audio oh, while no. it's uh, talking to you. So you can't hear what's being said when you yeah. accidentally hit that button. Um, but I'll have like, I have, you know, three or four devices in various rooms of the house. And all of a sudden, like Siri will just start, you know, nattering on about something. And I'm like, I don't know, like what the cat said to yeah. you, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I don't use it for any. Uh, the The only thing I ever did was played a little bit with shortcuts to teach uh, Siri that when I asked to speak to Google, it could put me straight through. <laughs> but that's as far as I went with uh, Siri and any deliberate usage. I I accidentally tell her all kinds of things. But... That's funny. <laughs> I think Apple really shot themselves in the foot with their whole HomeKit. Originally, when HomeKit came out, it was you had to get a certain hardware certification from Apple, and you had to be Apple authorized, be a HomeKit device, and all that. And then no one was really going willing to pay Apple the privilege to sell to their customers yeah. with HomeKit, and it sort of just got sort of like as that defunct. You know, oh, HomeKit. No one's going to use HomeKit because we're not paying to use it. And then Apple's like, well, we don't have any products to offer for HomeKit integration now. So then they sort of relaxed it a bit and made it a, a software certification. And now I think HomeKit's starting to pick up now that it's a lot easier for, you know, third-party services and, and products to integrate with HomeKit. But I think Apple really, you know, set themselves back a few years by... Yeah, I mean, it's pretty decision. silly to, to to kind of insist on that, right? Like, it's... it's Especially especially yeah. with home automation uh, vendors, it's they've already got so many standards to pay for, so many different things to pay for. So it's it now becomes especially like let's say you're a light switch, right? If you're in US, Canada, whatever, you've got to get certified and then on top of that if you have radio devices, those radio devices need to get certified and, and so on and so forth, right? So it's just cost on top of cost and on top of that the like you said, the privilege of being able to mm. sell to people. Right. So yeah, yeah. So I could I could see that not working well. Uh, I mean, I think Amazon and and Google did a great job, but Apple will get there someday. Yeah, eventually. So, so Courtney, what are you running your uh, your instance of Home Assistant on? Uh, is it like a Raspberry Pi or laptop or what are you doing? Yeah, I I started with a Raspberry Pi One B, like the real real old one um, that I just had laying around someone had given it to me to play with and fairly quickly I was uh, finding that it was just not quite powerful enough to mm. uh, keep up with things so I'm still only on the 2B um, again you know friends have them lying around that they're not using that they're willing to give to me um, and I've actually got two of the 2Bs so I'm just starting to look into the idea of possibly splitting nice. things up somehow um, into sort of two separate devices uh, I've got you know extra computers and things around but the ease of just having that little tiny Raspberry Pi that just you know lives next to the router and plugs right in is is really nice and the images are all you know the the HassIO stuff is all easy to Right to an SD card and, and configure. So um, for now, that's awesome. that's how awesome. we're doing things. 
And you're using Hass.io or using uh, Straight Home Assistant via Docker uh, or something? Hass.io, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and then as of today, I am exploring, and I think I might have it working, um, <laughs> using uh, AWS for the database piece. I was having some issues with space and discovered actually I was affected oh. by some sort of FFmpeg bug that was taking up like 16 gigabytes of my SD card. Oops. But um, <laughs> I, what, I did resolve that and that ended up being a separate issue. But while I was still trying to figure out how to make more space, um, I had set up a, an AWS database instance to just write the Home Assistant database stuff off rather than to the SD card writing them uh, off-site. So that yeah, that, that'll uh, help your SD quicker. card last a little longer, too, uh, by exporting the, a lot of yeah. the databases and recorder tables and all that stuff. It's it's Move that off, right? I, I think that seems to be the best practice these days, if you, especially if you read the Reddit, uh, like, like Reddit comments and things like that. People are like, hey, yeah, move it off, because otherwise you're really taking a bit of a hit on your SD card. Yeah, it sounds like they're not lasting very long at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you're reading and writing, I mean, it's a it's a lot of of ins and outs. Yeah, for sure. So, what are you using in uh, AWS? Are you have you got like a Amari or a MySQL database like spun up there on in AWS that you're just pushing mm-hmm. data through to? Yeah, so it's through their RDS, um, and they have a plan where it's free for the first year, and then you either mm-hmm. have to move it somewhere yeah. else or pay for it. Uh, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see where I end up a year from now on that one. Uh, but yeah, it's just a MariaDB database running there and uh, it sort of set itself up. And like I say, I, th- I think it's working. It seems to be working. So I know for my personal setup, I I use the InfluxDB for any long-term data. So anything more than you know a month would go would be stored in InfluxDB. And then, you know, every month I try and just squish down my MySQL database because that's where, like, a lot of the logbook and the history yeah. data comes from, which I'm not really looking at, you know, post a day, really, realistically, unless I need to see maybe a week, like what happened in the last week, for example. But apart from that, like, the MySQL instance, I try and keep uh, as small as possible, and that really affects the, the reboot times as well I've found. So if you've got a, a really big MySQL database or an SQLite database that's huge, then when Home Assistant reboots, it's going to have to you know load up all the history from that. But with InfluxDB, it's just writing to that. It doesn't it doesn't read anything out of there. So it doesn't need to. If you've got you know a year's worth of data in InfluxDB, it's it's still going to be the same reboot time. That's good to know for sure. Mm. Might save you some time when you get into a year's time. You're like, oh, I've got two and a half gig of data like you probably don't need that two and a half gig of data so you might better save some money yeah there. yeah exactly <laughs> well and one of the things that does make uh, home assistant run very slowly and very painfully is when your uh, sd card is just about completely full just yep. in case anyone bumps yep. into that right, that it does <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you mentioned before you um you're running some smart lights and, and switches what, what products are you using are you like using philips hue or lifex or anything in particular so we're only wi-fi um i haven't got any zigbee or or Z-Wave devices at all. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the, so the lights that we're using, I ended up kind of accidentally, we got them from a bunch of different sources, but they all ended up being at their base level, the Tuya um, system. So I think one of them is like yeah. Smart Life and one of them is Genie, but they're all the same sort of original chip manufacturer in China. Um, and so that's the really nice thing about those. I, I didn't even know that until after I got them. But um, as I was starting to look at, you know, how do I integrate my Genie lights and how do I integrate my Smart Life lights, uh, realizing that at least from Home Assistant's perspective, uh, they're all the same. And so that's really nice because uh, it means that they kind of can just all operate on the same thing. Uh, the ones that I have that do the power monitoring are a different one. They're V-Sync, uh, but everything else we've got for lights and outlets are are on that Tuya system. Um, And then the PlayStation 4, uh, the TV has WebOS, uh, so it's an LG with Mm -hmm. that WebOS system. Mm -hmm. We've got some tiles. Um, I haven't had much success using them for anything responsive yet, but uh, they The device trackers or the the presence detection tiles, I'm guessing, that you can... Yeah, they're, yeah. so they're just little keychain. Yeah, the little fobs, yeah. Yep. Dongly things. Um, but I haven't had any success getting them to understand when we aren't home, so oh. uh, they, they seem to just think that they're always here, um, which, you know, at least is something. <laughs> and then um, the the Android app, which I'm just starting to play with, and, and the iOS app that 
uh, my roommates use. Um, I'll send back, you know, various data. Uh, the the iOS one's a little bit trickier because you have to give it permission to either run in the background or not. And so if it can't run in the background, then you'd have to launch the app to get it to send any data, which is just kind of uh, a fun, <laughs> fun conflict of iOS. Uh, and then as of yesterday, we're using uh, Nabucasa's cloud component as well. I signed up for my first free month to try and uh, see how we can get control of the PlayStation through our little speakers. So. Oh, nice. Hmm. That's very cool. So, so you mentioned that you were you you attempted using the tiles. Are you are you using anything else for for presence detection or anything else? Uh, nothing with any efficacy at this point. Um, I just through today when I was uh, looking into things to do this database shift and playing with the PlayStation, um, I did finally sort of have a light bulb moment and figure out how to get my MQTT events from that app we were talking about earlier to trigger things in Home Assistant. So I've got it set now so that it seems to know that I'm at home because I am, uh, but I haven't left. So it's, <laughs> it seems that everything we've got is really good at knowing when we're home. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> when you're not home. but if it doesn't know that we've left, it doesn't help much. Yeah. Uh, Could that be because of a, a data connection issue? Like if you've run out of for whatever reason, if the tile doesn't have a data connection to report that it's away, could that be an issue there? The tiles don't make any sense at all. Uh, in that, like the tile should connect by Bluetooth to a phone, and then the phone on whatever connection that, yeah. it's on should be what updates the cloud, and it's all through mm. the cloud, right? Like there shouldn't be the tiles shouldn't be communicating directly with anything on the like on our network with yeah. the iPhone and, and iOS or iOS and Android apps. The the thing that I'm bumping into is that I don't currently have Home Assistant set up to be accessible from outside of our own network. And so obviously the phone can't tell the system that it's not home if it can't connect to the system. Uh, so that's sort of the hiccup that I'm, I'm bumping into with the um, apps themselves. I need to the last time I broke my home assistant uh, system was when I went to set up the um, SSL and uh, remote access pieces, um, the DNS and stuff. So I'm a little bit tentative of that because that's what <laughs> messed it up last time. Um, but I do have the second Raspberry Pi. So I think I'm going to set up that just that stuff in a home assistant uh, instance all by itself and, and get that working and debugged and then see if I can... There you merge go. the two together somehow so that I end you, up... You've just created yourself this. a dev system, like... <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, I'm start, so I'm running two instances of Home Assistant and I, I'm trying to move anything that requires a, a cloud connection or constant polling updates to one Home Assistant instance and then that will just push its updates out through to the main uh, instance through MQTT because there is... Um, Home Assistant has a system called... Uh, MQTT state stream, and there's another one, MQTT uh, event stream, which basically allows you to link the two home assistant instances together. So, for example, um, I've got some blind engines that are cloud only, and they require a Wi-Fi connection, so I don't want my main instance, you know, bogged down having to update the blind status every, you know, 60 seconds or whatever. Eventually, with all the components loaded, it gets slow. So I'm trying to get the uh, secondary home assistant instance to do that, and then when actually does something does actually update, you'll just push it out through MQTT to the other one. And then the other system doesn't have to worry about loading up another um, component and platform and all that. It just, it knows MQTT is loaded, pull it down. Right. So and then the automations yeah. and, and actions would run on that second one. Uh, no. So the primary one would have, uh, would suck down all the data from MQTT. And then when it wants to, for example, open the blinds, uh, it will push a, a something back through MQTT to that secondary instance. And then that secondary instance will go, okay, I need to open up this blind. Uh, I know that this blind is a, a cloud-based blind, so I'm going to push that command out there. So it because it's MQTT, like the the two instances locally communicate very fast. So there's okay, no so real there's no yeah, extra delay, delay there. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm trying to achieve at the moment to try and get that main instance, you know, not having to have so many components loaded because there's, you know, things like the Waze travel time sensor, there's, you know, Aftership, um, all these other things that, you know, aren't mission critical. Like if I walk into the kitchen and the mm -hmm. lights don't turn on immediately, I don't want to have to wait, you know, I don't want to have to be bogged down because it's, you know, updating my packages from Aftership or it's, you know, what the drive's like to work for that 
to kick in. So if I can keep it as lean as possible, um, yeah, that we, I think that's going to improve things. That's yeah. my current thinking anyway, so we'll see how it pans out. <laughs> well, I, uh, I started playing with the Haas CLI event watch and uh, mm. was a little, a little surprised by just how much was coming through every you know, yeah. couple of seconds on that. Um, and you know, the time updates every minute and the, you know, all of this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's a lot to be going on. So dividing that up that way really makes sense to me that having one device to just kind of handle like you say, it's not the mission critical stuff. It's just, you know, all of that repeated checking that needs to happen. Um, yeah. and then letting the primary one kind of just handle the, what actually happens if things change. So you mentioned before, you've got your PlayStation that can actually, you know, now turn off and on based on your, your voice commands. What other, have you got another automation that's, you know, you're, you're really proud of or anything or any routines you set up with home assistant that make your life better? So I don't have too much for automations in Home Assistant. I've got a couple in Google Home, um, sort of like a, a bedtime one that turns on and off a couple of lights and switches. Um, but the the automation that really so far has made the most difference in our lives um, is that pushing the PlayStation button when the PlayStation turns on. <laughs> uh, and specifically because it, like I, the way I have it set up, it triggers when the PlayStation changes from off to idle, right? So it's yeah. when the PlayStation turns on. It's not based on an action being triggered from Home Assistant, right? It's not when Home Assistant turns it on. It's just when it turns on. Um, so even if uh, we turn the PlayStation on, I, I mean, if we turn the TV on, again, it's got that CEC connection, so it'll turn the PlayStation on. Or if you push the button on the PlayStation controller, obviously it'll turn on. Um, but in all of those states... Uh, it no longer hangs at that please press PlayStation button to continue screen. Uh, so it's it's super simple, uh, but I think is is the, the one that's made the yeah. most difference so far in that it's uh, affected every time we turn that machine on. <laughs> yeah, that that I, I, I completely know what you're talking about, and that is the most aggravating thing in the world. And the with it being a built-in component now, I mean it's it's easy to set it up. So you know, if even if all you did was get that out of it, yeah. I think it would be worth it. Are you guys using Areas yet? I am not. To be honest, I I'm personally not. I think when it first came out, it was literally you could just define an area and put you know items in the area. But I I haven't really started automating anything with Areas per se yet. I haven't, I haven't either, but uh, as I'm adding, like when I added the PlayStation, um, specifically when you add things to that integrations page now, um, mm. it asks for an area sort of for every item, um, right. just by default. And I assume that's just sort of, you know, on the way to, to having that be a piece that we actually want to, to yeah, use for stuff. I don't think there's any services like, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that, uh, eventually, you know, couple of releases time there might be a like an area dot turn off lights yeah. for example and so if you want to turn off you know all the lights in a room like the living room you would just call that service or something to that effect or you know light dot turn off uh, area living room but i'm not sure if it's to that level just yet i know when it first came out it was literally just the ability to assign devices to an area and i yeah, i haven't looked at it any further yet for so far groups have uh, been where i've done most of that sort of logic yeah, uh, pretty much exactly mm -hmm. the same for me. Yeah, it's exciting though to to see how things are. It's it's just I don't know. I love how quickly things are progressing and and changing and improving. You know, it's like every two weeks there's Agreed. something else that's exciting. Always brand new toys. <laughs> at least releases tend to come out towards the end of the week. Although now I'm on the beta, which is no good no, at all. <laughs> I'm I, I do, I'm the exact same. So because now I'm spending my like work days on. I don't know, Wednesdays and Thursdays messing around <laughs> with home assistants. I may That's have right. to rethink that life choice. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll leave links to your GitHub repo, which has got your home assistant config on there as well. So thank you once again for making the time. Thank you guys for uh, having me on. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers. Cheers. If you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest, reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io. That's H-A-S-S podcast.io.
The Home Assistant Podcast is hosted by Phil Hawthorne and myself, Rohan Karamandi. For links to topics that we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io. 